Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There is an inscription written over these men who were buried where they fell and over those who died before the others went away, dismissed by Leonidas. It reads as follows. Here, 4,000 men from the Peloponnese once fought 3 million. That inscription is for them all, but the Spartans have their own. Go tell the Spartans, thou who passest by, that here, obedient to their laws, we lie. So wrote Herodotus, the father of history, looking back on the Spartans who died at the Battle of Thermopylae. Tom, Tom Holland, Thermopylae is one of the two great engagements in the Greco-Persian wars, the, the wars that in some ways are at the very foundation of history itself. So um, tell us, why are we doing this subject, apart from the fact that it's a brilliant subject? It is a brilliant subject. Uh, I, I have to say, I mean, basically, it's, it's the subject that got me into history as a child. So maybe wow. come to that in a minute. But but the reason we're doing um, specifically Thermopylae and Salamis, which are the two great battles fought in 480 BC, is that this is the 2500th anniversary. So this episode will be going out at approximately the day on which 2500 years ago, the Persian battle fleet was defeated in the Straits of Salamis, thereby perhaps radically changing the course of history i mean we we might come on to a discussion about we that definitely later we definitely <laughs> i thought we would <laughs> um but as you said also it is it is in a way kind of the foundation of history because this story about how the greeks confronted the persians and defeated them became the theme for the first great work of history herodotus and i'm very grateful that you um you cited him, but you didn't use my translation. I didn't use your translation. Do you know why? I, I just couldn't find it in time, to be honest. Oh, I knew you'd be well. cross. As I, even as I was reading it, I felt you a little bit... You knew I'd be cross. I, I thought you'd be cross, but I thought that would add a piquancy to the episode. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it does. It's driven me into an absolute fury. Now, of course, you have only recently been associating with the Persian because you have you are coming to this. I mean, one reason I wanted to puncture your, your sort of bubble of, of immense 
pride, not that you have a bubble of immense pride, but if you did, I wouldn't want to puncture it, is that you have you've been basking in the adula- in the adulation of fans of the rest is history, haven't you? Because you've just only a couple of days ago you did the live show about top ten mistresses with top Persian Ali Ansari. We did, and I think I'm not entirely sure of the logistics of it. And this is all very complicated, isn't it? We record these episodes before they then go out, obviously. But I think the the top ten mistresses, which was the subject of our our live show at the London yeah. Podcast Festival, will have gone out before this episode goes out. So perhaps people may have heard it. But Dominic, you were you were much missed. Um, well, I don't believe that at all. No, you no you really. I mean, it was lovely to do it with Ali, who was absolutely brilliant. Um, as he was in in the Persia episode, I mean, he got in. I mean, if I did, people have heard the episode, but he got in an absolutely terrible Persian mistress. Really? I mean, yeah, she was called the Nightingale, but then he went on to say she was actually called the Parrot. And I waited to hear what this amazing Iranian mistress had done, and she'd done absolutely nothing. Oh no! I mean, if yeah. I was, so, was going to have a Persian mistress, my expectations would be very high. I have to yeah, say, I was, I, I was very disappointed in that. But having said that. Everything else about Persia, obviously, is brilliant. Yes. Um, you know my thesis and one that, that Ali shares, that basically everything comes from Persia. Um, and that is, uh, I think, what makes the story of the Persian invasion of Greece so brilliant. And it's something that I didn't realise, really, when I got obsessed by it as a child, where I was all over the Greeks. It was completely Greece. It was Athens, it was Sparta, yeah. absolutely on their side. But I now, with the wisdom of my many, my <laughs> of many decades, yeah. my wisdom of the years, I now appreciate that that we owe just as much to Persia as we do to okay. Greece. Well, and that's what makes this such a, a seismic So let's put topic. this into context for listeners who, who, who don't share your childhood, childlike childhood enthusiasm. So we're in the 5th century BC, is that right? And... That's right, isn't it, Tom? You're just looking. Yes, yes. And Persia is top nation. I mean, Persia is by far the most important, rich, sophisticated civilization in the Eurasian world, I guess. Well, I mean, putting China on one side. And Greece is nothing. Am I right? I mean, Greece is just a collection of of kind of pretty obscure little city-states. So Persia is... um... I mean, it's not just the the greatest power on the face of the planet. It's the greatest power that has ever existed. The scale of its empire is unprecedented. And it it goes from the shores of the Aegean right the way up. Well, you know, we we talked about this in our our, um, Afghanistan episode. It goes all the way up beyond Afghanistan into kind of Central Asia to to, to the Indus. It's rich. It's teeming with, with manpower. It commands the most sophisticated, the most ancient civilizations in the world, Egypt, Babylon, absolutely a, a, a stupefying power. And compared to that, absolutely, the Greeks are nothing. Um, and I, when I when I wrote Potion Fire, which um, I'm shamelessly going to plug. No, you should plug um, it. My book I mean, on this. It is the um, popular history on this. But, but, it, but, but it's kind of, I, you know, you have to write a blurb. And I wrote Persian Fire in the, the backdrop to the invasion of Afghanistan and the Iraq war. And during the Iraq war, there was a lot of talk from American neocons about how America was the heir of Athens. It was a, it was a democracy. Yeah. Um, and that uh, the war in Iraq was a war for democracy. And so therefore, in a sense, they were the Athenians. 
But it struck me then and it struck me very strongly um, over the past month with the kind of withdrawal from from Afghanistan, that actually, in a sense, uh, America is, you know, in its sense of kind of global mission, its its superpower status, its desire to bring order to a a kind of rugged, (laughs) terrorist ridden (laughs) backwater is actually America. Right. Uh, is actually yeah. Persia. Um, and so the um, I, I, the blurb that I wrote for Persian Fire, in the 5th century BC, a global superpower was determined to bring truth and order to what it regarded as two terrorist states. The superpower was Persia, incomparably rich in ambition, golden men. The terrorist states were Athens and Sparta, eccentric cities in a poor and mountainous backwater, right. Greece. And so I think that that does kind of brilliantly scramble i should say brilliantly the idea of of um that that we in the west can trace our origins to persia as well as to, to greece i think is a great way to kind of scramble the default assumption that we in the west are uh, just they are kind of uh, you know things well tom to, there are suppose there are, two, there are two aspects to that aren't there to that sort of very Hellenocentric um, portrait that we have. One is, if you ever look at a map of the Persian Wars, Greece is kind of central, and most of the Persian Empire is off stage. So it's just this sort of shadowy Eastern power, and and Greece is the center of the world. But obviously, that's not how people, are the, how most people in the kind of Eurasian landmass thought of Greece. They thought of Greece as very peripheral, and Persia is central. Of well, these great cities of. I mean, well, I guess Greece. so, but I mean, your mental <laughs> Greece. Well, I mean, but your mental world is defined by Persia rather than by Greece, right? For most people, at the time, for most, let's say, educated people. Well, there's there's a brilliant passage in Herodotus, uh, and you know, just to reiterate, Herodotus is, is writing uh, effectively the first work of history ever written. So, yeah. so this is, you know, he's blazing the path here. And he is writing about a Persian king called Cambyses, who's the son of Cyrus the Great, who is the the kind of the the founder of the Persian Empire, eulogized by the Persians, but also by the Greeks, by the Jews. I mean, he's kind of, you know, he's hailed as the Messiah in in the book of Isaiah. And Cambyses has invaded Egypt and there supposedly he goes mad. And Herodotus draws this information from the Egyptian piece. It's, it's, It's probably propaganda, but this is what he reports. And he says one of the markers for why Cambyses is mad is that he laughs at the Egyptian gods for kind of having animal heads and the Egyptians for worshipping bulls and things like that. And Roger says this is insane because um, everybody thinks that their customs and their habits are the best and everybody thinks that their, you know, their lands are the best. And as evidence for this, he tells a story about Darius the Great, who succeeds Cambyses and who is um, the king who sends the expedition to attack Athens that gets defeated at Marathon. So in a sense, the great enemy of the Greeks. But in this story, he, he is put center position. And Herodotus tells a story that Darius summons a Greek and an Indian. And the Greeks, when their parents die, burn them. And the Indians, when their parents die, Herodotus reports, eat them. <laughs> That's really not true. And it's not true. But for the purposes of the story, it, it, let's say it is. Yeah. And Darius says to the Greek, how much would I have to pay you to eat your parent? And the Greek goes, oh, I'd never do that. And yeah. to the Indian, he says, how much would I have to pay you to burn your parent? And the Indian is, is equally disgusted and revolted by the very idea. And Herodotus says, this proves what Pinder, the great poet, said 
that custom is king, that everybody thinks his land is the best. But the thing that's fascinating about that is that Herodotus is actually situating Darius at the centre. Herodotus, a Greek, is looking at the world through Persian eyes. And I think that that is kind of reflective of the way that even a Greek could recognise that the Persians were kind of central because they wouldn't, that, they wouldn't have done it the other way around. A Persian writer wouldn't have looked through Greek eyes. A Persian would never have done that. The Persians were convinced that Persia was best and that, um, you know, it stood at the centre of the world. Of course, the Greeks said the same. The Greeks had this story that, that Zeus set two, two, two eagles flying from different corners of the world and that they met over Delphi. So Delphi is the centre of the world for the yeah. Greeks. But I think it's possible for someone like Herodotus, who is, who is born on the, 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 what's now the Turkish side of the Aegean. He's from Halicarnassus, is he? That's right, yes, which is now Bodrum, the great yachting capital. In, yeah. in uh, the great yachting centre. You could go and wear your yachting shoes there. Tom, yes, I like could. The Kaiser. I could. Yes, make sure I got the right ones. He, 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 so he's born, I mean, he's a subject of the Persian king. Uh, right. So he can he kind of has a, a you know foots in both worlds. Foots, <laughs> foots. Yeah, feet. Uh, he has a foot in both worlds. Well, Herodotus. Okay, so Herodotus. Um, that raises the other thing I was going to talk about, which is that everything we are going to talk about about Thermopylae and Salamis and the Persian Wars, everything comes from Greek sources, doesn't it? I mean, we don't. Am I right in thinking there are no real Persian, certainly no narrative Persian accounts of these events? Not a single mention of them. From the Persians. They do not mention them at all. Now, maybe we'll come back to this, but worth raising now. This is obviously seismic for the Greeks, but do the Persians even notice it's happened? It's a moot point. (laughs) I mean, it's indisputably a defeat. Um, But obviously, unlike us, there aren't journalists, there aren't kind of cameramen, there aren't people on Twitter recording the humiliation. So the Persian king is able to kind of present it, um, I, I would guess, in a way that basically casts himself as quite successful. And, and, and we do have probably recorded in, in the writings of, of uh, um, a, a Greek writer of the first century AD, uh, a guy called Dio, who um, does seem to record how the Persians presented what had happened. So, so the, the two great battles in 480, when Xerxes, the Persian king, leads this invasion, there's the Battle of Thermopylae, where the yeah. Spartans hold the hot gates, hold the passes, but it gets turned and Leonidas, the, the king, gets killed. And then the Persians move down, they occupy Athens, they burn it before being defeated at Salamis. And according to Dio, this is, I mean, he, he, he says, during his expedition to Greece, Xerxes achieved victory over the Spartans at Thermopylae and killed King Leonidas there. Then he took and laid waste Athens, of which he sold into slavery all the inhabitants who had not succeeded in escaping. And after these successes, he imposed tribute on the Greeks and returned to Asia. Well, that sounds very much like a Persian victory. Yes. So I'm sure that that is how it would have been presented. And probably that is a kind of refracted echo of the original Persian propaganda, which hasn't survived. It's kind of rippling down through the centuries to be recorded by this Greek historian who, who, you know, he's very open to kind of Persian knowledge and influences. But no, there, there are no Persian reports, really. And the, the reason for that is that um, the Persians essentially see themselves as having brought about the end of history. OK. Know, everything's perfect. The Persians have conquered the world. And the thing about the Persians and the reason why there are, in a sense, we in the West are its heirs as, as well as the heirs of Athens, is that the Persians are the first people to moralise the idea of empire. I think we talked yeah. about this in our episode on empire, that they they see the world as divided into into to truth 
and the lie into light and into darkness. Um, and inevitably they cast their own rulers as, as, as light and truth. And they cast all those who oppose them as as darkness and falsehood. And that means that to um, essentially there is no need to describe what they're doing because everything is perfect. They have they have brought about the absolute essence of everything that human civilization could be. And so therefore, what is there to write about? Well, that's uh, not a great place for to be a historian. Well, no, it's a terrible place. Yes. And uh, to the to, to the degree that 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 when you look at the kind of incredible portrayals of the Persian kings, Darius or Xerxes or whatever, it's often impossible to tell them apart because essentially the, the great king, the king of Persia, the king of kings, he, his his role is divorced from the kind of humanity. Yeah. He he rules not as a kind of individual person who has inherited the throne, but as the essence of kingship. That's why he is the king of kings. That is his role. And so therefore, you don't get the kind of scandalous gossip that you get from Greek historians or later Roman historians, which is why, you know, someone like Darius or Xerxes is is a kind of much chillier, much more anonymous figure than, say, the the Spartan or the the Athenian leaders. Yeah, Themistocles. Okay, so let's talk about how it all, why does it happen Greece is disunited. Greece is city-states. Persia is the great empire. Why on earth, if you're so rich and powerful, why do they even bother attacking the Greeks? What's the story? Well, I, th- I think it's it, it's partly because empires have to expand, particularly if you feel that you have a kind of moral mission yeah. to pacify the world. Because inevitably, on your, along your borders, there are going to be kind of fracture points. And the Greeks are a very fractious people. They are very given to rebellion and in the 490s BC the Greeks who've been conquered were conquered by Cyrus's armies um, in the mid 6th century so these are all the cities on the coast they're of called Turkey, Ionia. Basically. Yeah. yeah so they're called the Ionians and the Ionians rebel and the Ionians look across the sea to um, the great cities of, of Greece proper for support and first of all they come to Sparta and the Spartans are, are a very kind of insular, crabbed people. And although Cleomenes, who we talked about in the, in the Sparta episode, although he is a, a, a kind of expansive guy, he, he, you know, he, he, he's not, he, he doesn't want to cross the sea. He, he, he doesn't want to go on kind of great Alexander-style adventures. And so he says no. And so then the Ionian ambassador goes to Athens. And Athens is a revolutionary state. It's, it's chucked out this guy, Hippias, who um, is a tyrant. And a tyrant doesn't quite have the meaning that it has in contemporary English. It's more like a kind of uh, a, a Latin American dictator. It's right. that kind of uh, Peron. He's a yeah. kind of Peronist figure. He's been expelled and the Athenians have embarked on this kind of radical political project that we know as democracy. Uh, and, and democracy today it doesn't quite have the connotations that it would have had for the Athenians, because for the Athenians, it's it's uh, the demos, the people that has the, the kratos, the power. The demos is everyone who who's living, who has lived and who will live, who have sprung from the soil of Attica. So it's deeply, deeply rooted in a sense of place. Yeah. The Athenians came to be autochthonous, sprung from the soil. They're not immigrants. And the democracy, the power that is given to this people is kind of expressive of this deeply weird, deeply supernatural sense of of community that the the Athenian people have with themselves, with the soil and with the gods, and particularly with Athena, who is their patron. And 
it's a state that because there is this kind of sense of commonality that hadn't been there under the rule of the, the Peronist uh, hippias, it, it's a kind of ferment of experimentation. They, they, they're, they're kind of flexing their muscles. They're, they're trying to test what they can do with this new sense of power, this new political experiment that they're running. And so they sign up to joining the Ionians. Just a quick question about the Ionians. When they rebel against the Persian Empire, I mean, they're not rebelling... Are they, are they rebelling because they don't like paying tribute, basically? Is that a tax rebellion? I mean, presumably they're not rebelling because they have a sense of Greekness and the, the Persian overlord offends that because the Persian king rules tons of different kinds of people. He rules Bactrians and Egyptians and Carmanians and, and all sorts. So there's no nothing wrong with being ruled by the Persian king, right? Yeah, th- th- there is a kind of resentment about it. There's okay. a resentment about the tribute. Um, I, I agree. I mean, you know, they'd been ruled... Before the Persians, they've been ruled by the Lydians, so they, they, they're used to paying tribute. But I think there's a kind of constant snarl of, again, in Ionia, as in Athens, there's a kind of tension between people who are tyrants, uh, people who resent being ruled as tyrants, individual ambitions, kind of a hint of class warfare. These are very, very unstable places politically. And so the kind of the yearning for freedom, the yearning to cast off Persian tributary power is kind of gets mixed in with the personal ambitions of the of the leadership it's that that generates the the impulse to to rebel and it's what makes the athenians kind of such natural allies yeah and and the guy who persuades the athenians to join in says that you know it's it was easier to persuade ten thousand men in athens than it was to persuade one man cleomenes in sparta (laughs) and and there is this sense that you know that this is an uprising, not just against the Persians, but against the kind of the ruling classes that had were were the kind of the yeah. uh, the petanists in, uh, in in these in these Ionian cities. So the Athenians, you know, they send some ships, and Herodotus says that this was the beginning of the the the, the great process of chaos that was to convulse the world. These ships going and the kind of echoes of the Trojan War there, which yeah. also Herodotus is kind of drawing out. So the Athenians go there, they join in uh, an expedition to go and attack the Persian governor in Sardis, which was the former capital of the Lydian Empire. Um, Croesus came from Sardis. Yeah, Croesus who invented money came from there. The founding father of this podcast. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So so the Athenians join in the attack. They they capture um, Sardis, but they don't capture the Acropolis, the kind of the high point, the high city. Um, which holds out and disastrously they accidentally set fire to the city and this burns down various temples and the Athenians are so kind of appalled at having done this that they all retreat the 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 Persian you know they get cavalry they attack the Ionians are defeated the Athenians skedaddle back to um back to Athens there's a kind of enormous sense of anxiety not just that they have kind of tweaked the 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 tail of the of the the Persian um, great beast but also that they've offended the gods and so basically they kind of there's a kind of agreement they're just going to forget about it right. you know let's just pretend this didn't happen and meanwhile on the other side the persians are kind of moving in for the kill they raise a great fleet um the the ionians are cornered outside miletus which is the center of this rebellion by an island called lade and the entire fleet just disintegrates because what the persians do, are brilliant at when they fight they they're brilliant at bringing overwhelming force which they have, they can muster fleets from across the empire. Yeah. Um, they're very, very good at kind of data resourcing. So they know exactly, you know, who is 
in with who and they're very very good at espionage they're very good at kind of getting secret agents and so they use gold basically to foster dissension among the the ionians and the whole battle fleet just disintegrates and then the persian fleet moves in and mops it up they then sack miletus and they take away uh, the inhabitants um you know to, to to persia the the boys are castrated the girls are sold as slaves it's it's hideous and when a play is staged in Athens about the fall of Miletus, the guys, the, the playwright is fined, the play is banned, and, and the Athenians, you know, they just don't want to know about it. The whole thing is appalling. Because they feel guilty, or because they... I think they feel. A, I think they they feel a sense of shame that they let the the Milesians and the Ionians down. They feel guilt that they burnt down the um, the temples in uh, Sardis, and therefore the gods are against them. Yeah, and they're frankly crapping themselves. Right. The thought of what the Technical Persians term. might do. Yeah. quite correctly. Yeah. So the Persians now at this stage, the Persians could could let sleeping dogs lie, as they were. They could just say, right, well. That's it. But they're, they're presumably determined to teach the Athenians a lesson, are they? To... Exactly. And it's exactly like the Americans going to Afghanistan after the burning down of 9-11. That these guys are harbouring terrorists. They're a terrorist yes. state. They're a terrorist state. You know, Athens is kind of the equivalent of Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, we've got to root them out. Yes. Uh, we've, we, you know, we, for the good of the world. You know, it's not just kind of Persian amor propria. It's, it's, we have a duty. You know, so... We need to bring truth. We need to bring order. And and Athens is seen as a nest of davers, of demons. Right. You know, they they yeah. need to purge Athens with fire. That's very kind of post nine eleven, isn't it? Yeah. And the, so the George Bush of this scenario is Darius the Great. Is that right? He's that, the... that is right. Yes. And so does he go himself? He goes himself. No, he's he? he's oh, no. far too important to bother with. With a, you know, it's basically they see it as border policing. Yeah, it's a sort it, of punitive it, raid, basically, more than a... Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, it has to be done, obviously, for kind of reasons of realpolitik. You yeah. can't allow a people to just come along and burn a city and attack you and then not be punished for it. But there is also this kind of cosmic dimension. So an, a, a, an amphibious expedition is sent across the Aegean. First of all, it attacks uh, the city of Eretria, which is in Euboea, Evia today it's the kind of long thin narrow island yes that, that is north of Attica that gets captured then they land on the plain of Marathon the Athenians rather than hunker down inside their city send all their soldiers hoplites named after the hoplon the the heavy shield that that heavy the armored infantry carry they actually march out to try and meet with the with the Persians they also send a messenger running all the way to Ath to Sparta to try and get the Spartans to come and join them. The Spartans yeah. are celebrating a festival, so can't but say that they will come there, you know, when it's over in a week's time. <laughs> Thanks that, for that. Yeah, yeah, cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the only people who come to the Athenian rescue is, is from the tiny town of Plataea, which the Athenians had backed in their war against Thebes, which is the kind of the big heavyweight city of Boeotia, the region just next to Attica. Um, so the Plataeans do come and join them, but there are hardly any. So there's a kind of there's a, a, a kind of standoff above the plain of Marathon. And then the Athenians see that the Persians are starting to load troops onto their ships. And a message comes that the cavalry is being loaded on. And this means both that maybe these ships are heading round the headland to go to Athens to attack it directly while there's no one to defend it. But it also means that you know, the, the infantry can march down into the plain and they won't be attacked by cavalry. And so this is what the Athenians do. No Greek army had ever defeated the Persians in pitch battle. So it took, you know, they're, they're massively outnumbered. 
it, it takes incredible courage. They charge down the hill. Last kind of stretch they start to run. They smash into the Persian line. The Athenians have weakened the centre of their line. So the, the, the centre of the Persian line goes forward, but the Athenians are then able to kind of turn around and pincer it. Yes, and to annihilate envelop it, it, I guess. Envelop yeah. it. And they kind of play on, on, on Persian overconfidence because the Persians push forwards in this kind of way because they assume that they're going to defeat them because they've always defeated the Greeks. But instead, it's the Athenians who win. The Athenians then rush back to Athens to make sure that, that the Persians can't kind of snip round and, and capture Athens while they're away. The Persian fleet moves into the harbour of Phaleron. They see the, 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 tent, the, the Athenian hoplites drawn up on the harbour front. They kind of pause and then the sun sets and the Persian fleet withdraws and the Athenians have, have seen the Persians off. And of course, this is the greatest thing that the Athenians have ever done. Yeah. Uh, they've lost 190, the Persians have lost thousands and thousands. They build a great kind of funeral memorial for it. The Spartans arrive late. They go and inspect the Persian dead, you know, pay the Athenians great compliments. There's, there's basically the kind of the Athenians relax. They think we've seen the Persians off, we're brilliant. You know, we're heroic. It's the hoplite class. It's the, the kind of the people who can afford armor who did it. Brilliant. But however. Then, yes. Yeah. Well, however. this is the perfect point to take a break. Um, and when we return, we'll, I guess we'll be getting into the Battle of Thermopylae. Won't we? Very exciting. See you after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about the Persian Wars and specifically the Battle of Thermopylae. So the Athenians have just wiped the floor with the Persians at Marathon, Tom, and uh, yeah. very overconfident. But they've got a shock coming, haven't they? Because the Persians are going to come back for more. It comes as a shock to most people in Athens. Most people in Athens assume that everything is fine, that the Persians have gone. But there are those who kind of Churchill-like 
are looking to the future and recognizing the full scale of the the kind of storm that is gathering and of these the 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 ablest is a man called themistocles yeah who is um a kind of a, a child of the democratic revolution so he's grown up as a political figure uh, really only knowing the democracy so he's that first generation and in a sense he he's the kind of the prototype of the de- the democratic politician so he's 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 become a kind of a legal figure so he's the first person to become a lawyer and recognize that this is a, a good way to kind of prepare yourself for politics he he also understands that the implications of the democracy the fact that everybody now has a vote and a say is that if you start appealing to to people who who don't necessarily have large amounts of property who don't necessarily have enough money to to own armor they're a resource you can get their votes yeah. and so he starts to so appeal to yeah he's a populist so he start well, or, or you could say he's um well he's appealing to the people whether that makes you a populist or a socialist or whatever. I mean, he's not a socialist but he's 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 someone who who's who is a man of the people yeah like you <laughs> yes just like me <laughs> that's exactly the comparison i was thinking of and he therefore argues that the focus of Athens should be on boosting its naval power. And the harbour of Phaleron that the, the Persian fleet had approached after Marathon is, is inadequate. It's not large enough. It's too exposed. Um, there is another place, a place called a bay called Piraeus, which is further from Athens itself, about two miles further but is much better protected and if developed could make a kind of an amazing, amazing harbour. And, and so Themistocles pushes this through and it's a way of kind of, uh, you know, it, it's calculated to appeal to, to those who are poorer, those who will get money to, to develop it, um, those who will then be able to make money from kind of you know profiting from the increased trade and everything. So this is very popular. But Themistocles also has his eyes on, on, on making Athens a great naval power as well as a great trading power. And just in the nick of time, so uh, Battle of Marathon's 490, this happens in 483, a massive seam of silver is discovered at a place of, uh, called Laurion, which is on the kind of Attic coast east of Athens. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's a prodigious amount of cash that is opened up. And so there's a debate as to what should be done with this money. Um, traditionally, when kind of windfalls happen like this happen, it's shared out among the people. And yeah. that you know obviously has appeal, and so um, there's a guy called Aristides who is nicknamed the Just because he's a figure of such kind of uh, moral probity. He argues that, that the silver should be shared out among everybody in Athens. Themistocles argues, no, we should invest this money in a fleet. We should make ourselves the greatest power in Greece, and he doesn't argue this because the Persians are coming, because he knows that lots of people aren't worried about that. And he doesn't want to seem like a kind of, you know, kind of whipping up phantoms. But instead, there is Athens has a great rival, the island of Aegina, which lies just off Attica. And so he says we could build a huge fleet and then we could beat the crap out of Aegina. And this and this is very popular. You know, so he's not like this. So he's not Churchill. then. He I mean, is he's... Churchill because he is looking at he's looking at Persia, but he's disguising the fact that okay. that's what he's doing. He's basically saying, you know. Let's build this fleet so we can we can attack Aegina. But all along, he's he's he knows that the real challenge is is Persia. So this he and Aristides have to basically argue the toss over this, and the argument is is so bitter and so impossible to resolve 
that um, this kind of novel political technique called ostracism has to be drawn on. And ostraca are kind of shards of pottery. And if there are two major kind of political figures in the democracy who are basically disrupting it and they can't be reconciled, the Athenians will have a vote to decide which one should be sent into exile for 10 years. And they write the name down on these uh, ostraca, on these fragments of pottery. And Themistocles and Aristides are put up for ostracism. And effectively, it's the first referendum in history. 1548. Essentially, they are voting on whether to, to spend the money on the fleet or not. Yeah. So, so much up. rides on this referendum. Yeah. And it's Aristides who ends up being exiled. Themistocles, his policy is passed. The investment goes into the fleet. And it's in 482, 481 that everyone starts to realise that actually the Persians are coming. Well, this but, is what I was going to ask. What are the Persians doing while all this is going on? So Darius is still king, am I right? Darius, Darius dies shortly after the Battle of Marathon. Okay, so he's gone. So he and, is, he, and he is succeeded by one of his many sons, a man yeah. called Xerxes. Great name. Great great name and a great guy. I mean, he's, he's seen as the kind of the archetype of a tyrant, a, a, you know, a hubristic idiot who, who, who fails because the, the Greeks write the history. But he's a man of, of formidable capabilities. Um, because he's a Persian prince, he's the he's the uh, the grandson of Cyrus. Um, Darius comes from a different family, but Darius has married um, Cyrus's daughter Atossa. Brilliant Atossa. name, Atossa. Yeah. <laughs> Whether she was Atossa, who knows? But Tom, come on, calm down. Uh, that's a below me, isn't it? That, that's a terrible joke. She so she's a kind of formidable queen mother figure. But Xerxes himself is is imposed physically imposing. He's been trained. He's tough. He's been trained in in all the attributes of war. He's also a great gardener. Persians are very very. They love their gardens. They they love their gardens, and um, there's a kind of war party in Persia that is saying, um, you know, we should definitely invade Greece. And one of the ways that they that that they get Xerxes to agree to this is to say that that Europe has kind of amazing trees. You could get some beautiful trees for your garden. It's kind of saying it's like yeah, it's it's a kind of garden center. Well, like Napoleon. Napoleon was very into his gardening. There's a whole yes. book about Napoleon and gardening. Yes, the so, Ruth one, isn't it? Yes. 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 Uh, well, Xerxes is the same. So Xerxes absolutely loves his trees, loves his plants, and, like, yeah, um, saplings and stuff. And so he decides, yes, we, uh, you know, I have a duty to the Persian people, to the empire, but above all to, uh, to gardening. The, you know, the cosmic balance of, <laughs> of good and evil to, to invade Greece and to punish uh, not just the Athenians, but also the Spartans. Because before Marathon... Darius had sent ambassadors round Greece asking for earth and water, which is the symbol of submission. Everybody had given it apart from the Athenians who put them on trial, the ambassadors on trial and executed them. And the Spartans who famously chucked them down a well. Right. So you can sort of see that from Xerxes' perspective, he's punishing two terrorist states. Yes. Athens and Sparta, who are, you know, they, they represent disorder, anarchy, violence. They treat ambassadors with scorn. They don't hand over the earth and water. They're just bad people. They are bad people. And that's absolutely, yes, they are bad. They, yeah. they, they are evil. That's yeah. exactly, yeah, the, the, you know, it's an axis of evil, Athens and Sparta. And the Spartans feel it. The Spartans are kind of paranoid about, actually, about the, the crime that they've committed in murdering the, the assassins. And they actually send two Spartans to Xerxes to try and kind of make up for it. And, you know, and no Xerxes, Xerxes doesn't kill them because he knows it's much better to leave the Spartans stewing in a sense of guilt. Um, so essentially Xerxes feels that he's on a moral mission 
Yeah. But he also feels that, of course, when he's invading Greece, he's doing it as the king of kings, as the, as, as the king of the universe. And therefore, he can't, as Persians under Cyrus had done, do this kind of... The Persians under Cyrus have been very mobile, essentially kind of based on horses, um, just Persians, just the Medes, very, very swift, very effective. Um, Xerxes can't invade Greece in that way because he's the, he's the king of, of, of the empire. So therefore, he has to take a force that is appropriate to his status as the yeah. king of the world. And so therefore, as well as all his kind of hardened troops, the Persians, the Medes and so on, he also has to bring people from every corner of the empire. Even if they're no good at fighting? Even if they're no good at fighting at all. So, you know, people who are armed with kind of stone-tipped spears and stone axes and things like that, they all have to come along. And this, in turn, makes it, makes it very problematic to, to get them there. Because it, the, he can't, you know, if he's bringing this size of force, and there are arguments about how large it is. So Herod, that thing you passage from Herodotus. Yeah, Herodotus says three million people, which is obviously yeah. completely so, exaggerated. Well, that's the poem that he's quoting. Herodotus actually says it's about 1,070,000 uh, people. Uh, but I mean, that's obviously I, I, also I would a, guess, a ludicrous figure. I guess it's, it's about 250,000, 300,000. I mean, it's enormous. I mean, that's a larger yeah, force than any amphibian. I mean, it's the, than anything up to D-Day. I mean, it's, yeah. it's on an enormous scale. But they can't take them across in ships because there aren't enough. So that means that they've got to march across the Hellespont. Well, and then on across northern bridges Greece, or something. How do they get across the Hellespont? And they've got to take a fleet. Okay. So, the, so they have to kind of go in sync. Well, how do they cross the Hellespont? I mean, that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly the problem. Well, they build two pontoon bridges. Right. Okay. And the pontoon, there's a great storm in the winter and they get smashed up. So they have to be rebuilt. And the Greeks are absolutely shocked because the sea is punished symbolically by being branded and having fetters thrown into it. And this is seen as kind of massive, you know, offensive to Poseidon, the god of god, the sea. Where the sea was but, gutted. Yeah. The sea, well, we'll find out whether the sea was gutted because in due course, this becomes a kind of important part of the story, right. the vengeance of Poseidon for, for, for this. But also what they do is that there'd been a fleet earlier that, that had sunk around Mount Athos. And according to Rodotus, the, uh, the, the shipwrecked sailors had all been e- eaten by sea monsters. I mean, I don't know, what, who were they? What yeah. were they? We don't know. And so Xerxes has commissioned people to, uh, labourers, to, to build canals, you know, the, the three prongs of the Athos Peninsula. The yeah. canals are kind of dug through so that the fleet can just go straight through it and not risk being shipwrecked. So enormous preparations are made. And obviously the Greeks, you know, <laughs> even, even the kind of the, the, the dumbest Greek has to realise the, the monstrous scale of what is coming. And so in due course, when Xerxes arrives in Sardis, he winters there. Um, they send spies over to find out how large the, you know, the invasion force is. These spies get captured. They're about to be executed when Xerxes' guards come running up and say, what are you doing? These, the spies then get taken round. They get given full lists of everybody who's coming, all the brigades, all the ships and everything. Then they're sent back to the Greeks, who all... <laughs> Yeah. absolutely terrified and so in greece the prospect of this monstrous army coming is not met with a kind of over you know a unanimous decision to resist it the the, the athenians the athenians have to yeah the spartans have to because they're clearly toast but what it's it's not obvious that the other greeks do and because the Athenians and the Spartans have enemies among the Greeks, the likelihood is that Argos, the great rival in the Peloponnese for, 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 
for the rule, Sparta's yes. great rival, who the Spartans you know hate. The Argives hate them. The Argives claim descent from from a guy called Perseus, famous for chopping off the head of the Gorgon. And the Argives say that the Persians are descended from Perseus as well. In a sense, they're kind of, so they're kin. So maybe they should side with the Persians. And so they refuse basically to join. They say the only way that they'll join is if they can lead the army. And the Spartans refuse that. And the Argives know that they're going to refuse that. So basically, they're neutral. And then the Thebans, because the the Athenians and the Thebans have been had this bust up over Plataea, this kind of tiny town in, in Boeotia that properly should be subordinate to Thebes, but has become an Athenian ally. The Thebans are, are, are gagging to side with the Persians as well and see Athens destroyed. So the so, idea that this is a Persian, a Greco-Persian war, a clash between two civilizations, Greece and Persia, is completely wrong, right? It's not completely wrong because... Well, some the, Greeks. the Greeks and the Persians have very, very different perspectives on things. I mean, so, so but there are Greeks fighting on the Persian side, though. Absolutely, aren't there? and there are Greeks who who will always regard a kind of outside force as a lesser threat than their immediate enemies. Yeah, and the Persians know this, and the Persians are absolute masters of dividing and ruling, and that's why their agents are everywhere. They have an incredibly sophisticated espionage network. Tom, I'm very conscious. This episode is all about Thermopylae. But we well, we're coming actually, to Thermopylae. We haven't, really coming, got, we haven't got to Thermopylae. Well, listen, I tell you what we should do for this episode. We should get the Persians to the gates of Thermopylae. Okay. And then we'll do Thermopylae. So we should call the, the episode The Gates of Thermopylae. <laughs> <laughs> the Road to Thermopylae. The Road to Thermopylae. The Road to Thermopylae. So, so that's what you're listening to in case there's any, there's any <laughs> yeah, uncertainty. Sorry, guys. have been going on too long. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I mean, it's not quite Rachel Morley on the top 10 churches level of, um, level of yes. delay and I jeopardy. Talk faster. Of, yeah. So, okay. There are Greeks on the Persian side, and there are also Greek mercenaries, aren't there? The Persians always relied on Greek mercenaries. And obviously there must be Greeks from the Ionian coast. Absolutely. So, so, so the Ionians, are, they have to supply contingents of ships. So the great king marches from Sardis. He marches up to um, Troy, where he offers sacrifice to Athena yeah. to show that you know there's no hard feelings about the fact he's going to destroy her city, try and get her on board. Right. Then he, he, he sits on uh, this throne. He, all his fleet is out before him, his armies. Oh, yes, I remember the scene in the kind of book. famous scene Great set piece. that Herodotus describes. And he, he, he gazes out and then suddenly he bursts into tears. And his uncle asks him, why are you weeping? And Xerxes says, I'm looking out at this, all these men who are under my command. And then I suddenly thought that in 100 years, not one of them will be left alive. Gosh, well, Xerxes is such an impressive, profound thinker. Isn't he? I admire him for that. I mean, that. he clearly didn't say that because that's a very Greek perspective. It's right. Herodotus kind of projecting it onto him. Right. But I, I think that um, Herodotus does say that, you know, Xerxes is the most physically impressive, the most um, kind of authoritative figure in the army, that he deserved to be king. So there's a recognition that Xerxes is a very kind of impressive performer. But that said, Tom, so that scene is is Herodotus projecting. But then you say... Herodotus then says Xerxes is incredibly formidable and impressive and everything. But, I mean, presumably that's Herodotus projecting as well, isn't it? That's him creating a, a suitable villain yeah. um, for he, the Greeks he, to defeat. Yes, so actually, he, in a sense, we know nothing about Xerxes that's not filtered through all this this sort of historicising propaganda. Well, I, I think the fact that Herodotus, I, obviously, the fact, you know, Her- Xerxes is the great invader. Uh, he loses. So it's inevitable that he's going to be cast as the villain. I think the fact that Herodotus can say he's also a very impressive figure. Yeah. If implies he was King he John, was. If he was King John, he, he would not have done that. No, he would not. 
So I think I think that um, we can assume that Xerxes is an impressive figure, not only because um, the, you know, Herodotus says he is, but also because he you know, he does actually control this great army. Yeah, he 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 does hold it all together, um, and that's no easy feat at all. And so they cross the Hellespont. Yeah, takes seven days according to Herodotus, and they start marching along northern Greece and then down, and the fleet is slowly kind of matching it as it slips along the coastline and so there's this sense of this terrifying force coming towards Athens coming towards Sparta and this inevitably generates kind of immense panic among the Greeks who have decided that they're going to they're going to fight so they do what the Greeks always do in such situations which is to consult Apollo at Delphi and so the Spartans send a message and the message from Apollo is that the only way that Sparta can hold out is if a king of Sparta dies. So that's <laughs> that's something for, for the Spartans yeah. to think about. Yeah. And then yeah. the Athenians, the Athenians go and the Athenian messengers walk in and the, the Pythia, this kind of old woman dressed in a, a young girl's dress, who is Apollo speaks through her, she goes, whoa, you're screwed. <laughs> You're absolutely screwed. Is that, is that There's what no Herodotus way. You, says. Yeah, pretty much. You're screwed. Run to the ends of the world. You know, you, you, you're, you're going to be murdered. And the Athenians totter out and they kind of pale and they can't believe it. You know, surely Apollo can give us something to cling to. <laughs> and this priest comes out and says, uh, guys, you know, give, give it a go. Give it another go. You know, let's, let's see what he comes up with this time. Right. And, and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to read what he what Apollo says, because it's very important for what then subsequently happened. So he, he, Apollo says, Athena has been begging Zeus to spare Athens, and Zeus is determined that um, Athens is going to burn. And yet, this word I give you, adamant, a promise, everything within the borders of Attica shall fall. Yes, and the sacred veils of nearby mountain ranges, but the wooden wall alone, the wooden wall shall stand. That much Zeus grants to Athena. As an aid to you and all your children, men on horses, men on foot, sweeping they come from Asia. Retreat, for soon enough you will meet with them face to face. Divine Salamis, you will be the ruin of many a mother's son when the seed is scattered or the harvest is gathered in. And so typically Delphic message full of kind of riddles and and uncertainties. Messengers go back. Themistocles seizes on it. What is the wooden wall? There are some who say the wooden wall is the the fortifications that surround the Acropolis. And so therefore, what Delphi is saying is, is, you know, hold on to the Acropolis and and try and and sit the siege out. Themistocles says, no, the wooden wall is our fleet. We should trust to our fleet. That is going to be the wall of Athens. We should abandon Attica. We should evacuate it, even though we are sprung from its soil. But we should trust to the wooden wall that is our, this incredible fleet that we've built just in the nick of time and divine salamis what does that mean well salamis is this island just off attica with a very kind of narrow straits between it and what that offers is the possibility of negating the overwhelming force that the persian fleet has because if you can trap them in the straits then their numbers will actually count against them and so themistocles says this is what we should do we should evacuate athens we should send our women and children across the sea to Troezen, which is a city um, in uh, in the Peloponnese. Um, we should evacuate the old men and, and the gods, statues of the gods to Salamis. Uh, and we, 
should trust to the fleet. We should also, before we abandon Athens, try and hold a forward line. And Themistocles has been on a kind of reconnoitering mission north. They've recognised that they can't hold the kind of um, the, the the line around Mount Olympus, which you know is is uh, near Thessaly. But south of Thessaly, there is um, there's a very very narrow road that has the sea on one side and a, a mountain pass, mount, high mountain cliffs on the other. Uh, there are hot boiling springs of sulphur there, and so it's called the Hot Gates, Thermopylae, in Greek. And the sea, so you can't just hold the land. You've also got to hold the sea. There's the island of Euboea, which its head kind of reaches up just next to where Thermopylae is. And there are kind of narrow straits there as well. So if the fleet goes there to a, a beach called Artemision, named after a temple to Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, maybe the troops can hold the pass and our fleet can hold this you know, naval equivalent, this maritime equivalent of a pass, and maybe we can we can keep the Persians at bay there. And this is the plan. And they wait and they wait, but still the Persians don't come. And August comes, and we remember talking about the um, the Olympic episode that we did. We opened with this, how the Olympic Games start, and the Spartans are very kind of aware of their obligations to the gods. They can't fight during the the Olympics the Olympic festival. But then the news comes, the Persians are, you know, the Persians are almost at the gates. So the Spartans decide to send Leonidas with 300 men, all of whom have already had children. So the implication is they know that, you know, there's a massive risk that they're going to die. And there is, of course, also that prophecy from, from Apollo that only the death of a Spartan king will enable Sparta to survive. The Spartans advance northwards they they accumulate about 5000 men on the way um among them uh, men from Thebes which is divided between people who want to, to oppose the Persians and to side with the Persians so those who who want to 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 oppose the Persians go with Leonidas and his and, and the other men they arrive at the gates meanwhile the 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 Greek fleet sails northwards to Artemision um it's not under the command of Themistocles because everybody else hates the Athenians. They're all jealous of them for having this new fleet, the Corinthians and the Megarans and the people from Aegina, people like that. So they're actually serving under a Spartan admiral. But effectively, Themistocles is in command. So you've got Leonidas on land. You've got yep. Themistocles ready at sea. Oh, the tension, Tom. The tension. And then, and then haze, a distant dust haze is seen rising in the distance. And... A flash of light comes from the island of Skiathos, which is just north of Artemision, at dawn, signalling that the first Persian ships have been seen. Brilliant. Well, that sets things up very nicely um, <laughs> for the next episode. So I thought this episode was going to be about Thermopylae, but no, it's about the road to Thermopylae. The, the atmosphere could not be more heavy. There's electricity in the air, even as I'm there literally here. is There literally is electricity in the air, and I will explain why at the beginning of the next episode. God, what a tantalising prospect. So tune in next time to the next episode of The Rest is History, when um, finally the Battle <laughs> of Thermopylae will get underway, and we will see you then. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, 
early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 